working our way through it, learning from God. This book is intended for blessing for God's people. It's not meant to be a curiosity, but something that really blesses us, um, each one of us in our walk with the Lord. Is there a funny echo going on or something? Oh, is there? Yeah. Uh, So you can turn there. We'll be reading in uh, chapters 17 and 18. The title of the message this morning is The City of Man, and Often I try to uh, draw on works of art, so that's a painting done in the mid-1800s depicting part of the the fall of Rome, and that's where I want to start while you're turning, is to tell you about the story of Rome. Rome was the greatest city ever, perhaps, uh, in terms of its influence and power and wealth and riches. It housed over a million people in its day when... when, um, when most of the big cities in the world at that time had about a tenth of that. Uh, if you scale that to modern times, imagine a city of 70 million people. That's about 100 Bostons. Uh, that's the scale of Rome. It was a massive, powerful city. It, it, it was the seat of the empire that ruled over 20% of the world, um, and the equivalent of about 1.5 billion people today. They possessed uh, perhaps as much as half of the world's wealth and their empire, and they were... Um, incomparable in military strength. They were a powerhouse for works of engineering and technology, theater, philosophy, art, even food. It was called the Eternal City and considered really the very center of the world, the great city of Rome. But in August 410 A.D., King Alaric and his Visigoth army invaded and sacked the very city of Rome. The population was in disarray. Over 300,000 people fled or were killed in the process. All the wealth and prestige that Rome had known was pretty much gone, and only all that remained was shame and poverty. The shock to the ancient world was great. Uh, Jerome, St. Jerome, heard the news while living in Jerusalem, and he said the following. I think we have a quote to put up. He said, Who would believe that Rome, built up by the conquest of the whole world, had collapsed? That the mother of nations had become also their tomb? Who would have believed that mighty Rome, with its careless security of wealth, would be reduced to such extremities as to need shelter, food, and clothing? When the bright light of all the world was put out, or rather, when the Roman Empire was decapitated, and to speak more correctly, the whole world perished in one city. It was a shocking event to have this city sacked and conquered. Uh, St. Augustine, Augustine, a, a bishop, a church leader of the time, a contemporary of Jerome, he wrote a book in reply to what had gone on because the shock and confusion was so great. People didn't know how to sort it out. And actually, a lot of the non-Christian part of the empire at the time, and Christianity had had a profound effect. There were many believers at the time living in Rome as well. Uh, the non-Christian part of the world said, well, it's because of the Christians. We've abandoned our gods, and that's why Rome was sacked. And so, Augustine wrote a book uh, to answer their questions. Really, the size of the book is in proportion to the shock. It's a 1,500-page book called The City of God, where he addressed the issues And the things that he talked about in that book are very profound uh, and relevant to our message, relevant to Revelation. Uh, And and what he said, in his own words, I have a quote to put up, he said in speaking of this, of all that had gone on, he said, though there are very many nations all over the earth, there are no more than two kinds of human society, which we may justly call two cities. One consisting of those who live according to man, the other of those who live according to God. The city of man, the first called that, and the city of God. And what Augustine was saying was that there were things going on behind the scenes in Rome. Basically, the city of man was happening and the city of God as well. There were people who were following the Lord who were part of Rome. And really, anywhere that you might be, whether it be a city or a small village, a neighborhood, um, to, to where you live, there are basically two cities happening. The city of man and the city of God. Any place where people live, depending on mankind, by man's standard, setting up a name for themselves apart from God, a culture for themselves apart from God being at the center, that's the city of man. And wherever people come together in faith to submit to the Lord, to by grace follow Him and obey His Word, That's the city of God. And so what 
Augustine was saying is, guys, what happened to Rome is the natural course of these two cities and God dealing with these two cities. That these cities of man over time are judged by the God of the universe. That He's in control and He brings them to their end. Whether it be Rome or anywhere else. And so he was bringing perspective that there are these two cities. And we need to understand that and not be shocked when we see the cities of mankind fall. Because often what God is doing is He's bringing judgment on the city of man aspect of that city. And there's lessons for us here and lessons in our text today related to this. Really, the, the call of Revelation 17 and 18, the call that behind what Augustine said is for us to come out of the city of man. To come out of the city of man that's doomed to fall and live for the city of God that's destined for eternity. That's the core principle of this message today. I think the core of what Revelation 17 and 18 teach. And a really important lesson for us to understand as believers living in this world that's comprised of these two cities. So, I trust you'll see that as we dig into Revelation 17 and 18, but let's ask God for His help as we look at His Word and seek to understand these things. Lord, thank You for Your Word. That, Lord, as we live in this world that is tumultuous as things happen, uh, the ups and downs, things like a major city or major empire being sacked and changed, Lord, Lord, You do not leave us alone. You've given us Your Word that we would understand what's going on and how Your working. And so I pray, Lord, as we look at Revelation 17 and 18, would you help me to teach it and proclaim it in such a way that we would understand what you're saying? And Lord, we would be changed by your word and learn how to live in this world and in this time. Lord, I believe you have much good to work in our lives through your word. So come Holy Spirit, empower us. Help me, Lord, with my cold uh, to serve you well by grace. May you get all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along with me. I'm going to read two whole chapters uh, because they're together. Starting in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 in Revelation. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the Spirit, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority of the beast. Sorry, these are of one mind and hand over their power and authority of the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitutes. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was made bright with His glory. And He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas! Alas! For the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given for you has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel stood up, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. God's Word from Revelation 17 and 18. Well, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Pretty dramatic stuff. Uh, I hope you kind of get the gist of it. We'll walk through it. I I, I hope to help you make better sense of it. What I want to look at are four different aspects of this city. 
And I'm calling it the city of man after, after Augustine. Uh, we're going to learn later, we're going to meet later actually in 19, the city of God, uh, the bride of Christ. It's a different woman, a different city. Uh, just so you know, there, obviously there's metaphors going on here and there, we're mixing metaphors because Scripture is mixing metaphors. It's called a city. It's called a woman. It's called the city of man or the city of God speaking of the bride. Um, I want to look at four different aspects of this city of man and walk through it. And then I want to talk about our response to what the Scriptures call us to. Actually, in this passage, there's a response we're called to. But first, her riches. This, we meet this woman early on, a great prostitute, uh, symbolizing the city also called Babylon. She's seated on many waters. She's engaged in sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. And, and this is a vision that's being shown to John by one of the seven angels uh, who have brought the bulls of wrath. Later, one of those angels, maybe the same, is going to show him the, the bride of Christ. But here, he's showing uh, John the, the whore of Babylon or prostitute uh, of Babylon, as we would say. She represents the city of Babylon. And really, this, this city of Babylon represents worldly humanity. So it's a picture of worldly humanity. Uh, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't correlate with actual cities, but it's more of the, of the heart, the, the mindset of those in actual cities. Uh, a mindset of living for themselves and in, in, in enmity with God. Well, this woman, she's wealthy. She's very wealthy. She's arrayed in scarlet. This is an expensive cloth of the day. You had to be rich to have scarlet or purple clothing because the dye was very expensive. She's wealthy. She's adorned with gold and jewels and, and pearls. She bears a golden cup. She's a wealthy, like a wealthy promiscuous queen. That's kind of the, the picture here. She represents Babylon, this quintessential city of man. She's extremely prosperous. And, and the city has all the sorts of desirable and exotic goods that people in the ancient world, maybe at some point in their life, would just have hoped to have seen. This city is full of all these things. It's a place trading in, in all sorts of the things I listed. Gold, silver, jewels, and fine linen, and iron and marble, spices, all this stuff. It's a truly prosperous, worldly city. That's the picture here. She also trades, as often in powerful kingdoms, uh, she trades in human souls and slaves. Um, it's a picture, really, of, of humanity making a name for itself apart from God and as a people creating a culture apart from God. It's... Obviously a very prosperous city. This, this city, all these things going on, all that they have. And few cities in history would have seen this level of prosperity. Now we're going to see later on, I, I believe John is alluding to the city of Rome, but also any city that's arrayed against God in, in its own power and strength. But there's few cities in history that have, have had this sort of wealth. Actually, one city in history that had this sort of wealth uh, is Victorian London. In its day, back in the 1800s, London really was queen of the whole world. The center of an empire uh, on which the sun never set. London's docks at the time employed 20,000 workers who would be unloading uh, 70 million tons of good, goods from all over the world. It was a bustling place. Every corner of the globe, uh, they brought in goods from there. And, it, and then they would have had the sorts of things listed uh, in Revelation. So, we need to recognize that this city is really prosperous. And, and part of what I think God's getting at through His Word here is that there's an intoxicating effect of riches. That this city, this woman, uh, is wealthy and there's an intoxicating effect. There's, there's a power in beholding all these amazing riches. And I think we need to understand that. That's part of what's going on. Part of the motivation to form the city of man, to create this, this great center of culture and trade and power, is just the intoxicating effect of riches. We get motivated uh, when we see wealth and we're willing to do all sorts of things in the name of wealth. Have you ever been intoxicated by riches? Have you ever been around really wealthy people or contexts? Um, I haven't been too much, but one of the things that Peg and I do actually every winter, we take a, a winter study break and we go to Naples, Florida. We stay with our very gracious moms in their condos, so we're not living in, in really rich places. But we uh, love to go there and take a little break and then walk the beach in Naples. And the south part of the beach in Naples has uh, homes there that are homes of some of the wealthiest people 
in the United States. So if you could show some pictures. So Peg and I love to walk along and look at some of these mansions. Here's one. I think this one's about $70 million for this mansion. You just uh, go through the next picture of it. There's your view uh, from that place. And then the next picture, there are some of the rooms inside that house and the, uh, the, the yard and, and uh, how'd you like that? I think there's a kitchen, a kitchen like that, a, a study room like that. That's the entrance hall right there. That's just one of them. Uh, go to the next one. Next slide. There's another one of the mansions that's down there. And flip through the next slide. I think it just shows you some of the rooms inside. There's, there's the view and uh, just some of the rooms. Uh, and so when you walk, there's, there, there's a, it's about, about three miles long, and it's mansion after mansion after mansion after mansion. And, uh, and we love to look at them. And, and I don't, don't want to say we get intoxicated, but, but I can understand being around those things, how they could really draw you in. And you could really get ambitious, like, I just want to live in a house like this. Peg and I always say, well, we're going to have to wait till heaven for our mansion. It's not going to happen here as far as we know. But riches can be intoxicating. Seeing that sort of stuff and then having it there in your grasp, it can be intoxicating. And, and there's a power behind riches. There's nothing wrong with riches, by the way. Uh, we're going to see later that the city of God is a place full of riches. Heaven's going to be a place full of riches. But the difference is that those who live in the city of God hold their riches with an open hand. And they have a hand of worship. Lord, this is for You. How can I use this for You? I want to honor you. I want to enjoy this. I want to bless others with these things. Those who live in the city of man have a grip on those riches and that those riches become their God. They are living for those riches. That's the difference. And, and we just need to recognize the power of riches if we're not careful. We'll close our hands on them. We'll want to live for them. And really, this city is characterized by that. The things that follow, the evils we're going to talk about that follow, come from this love of riches. So, this is a very rich city. Uh, we, her, her riches. So, next, her lovers. Because of the intoxicating effect of riches, it attracts a lot of people. There are these lovers who are drunk with her. They're intoxicated by the wealth and the luxury and the things that follow as well with that. The, the evils as well. As we look through the two chapters, which you can start in, at the end of 18 and work backwards, we'll see all sorts of lovers, all sorts of people that have loved this city, mourning the fall of the city because they loved her so much. The sailors who were wealthy through trade with her, we see in 18 verse 17. We meet merchants who became wealthy by her in 18.14. We meet the kings of the earth in 18.9 who've committed sexual morality with this prostitute for the prestige and power and wealth that she brings. And then in chapter 17, we see that she... Uh, covers the nations of the world. So she has an effect not just on, on these, the sailors, the merchants, and the kings, but even the, all of humanity is influenced by this woman. All of humanity finds in her delight in her illicit benefits. So she has influence over really the whole world. So this is not just one locale. This is, a, this is influence really ac across the globe. In chapter 17, we learn that there's another lover of sorts of the prostitute, um, the beast. There's a beast. We saw the beast earlier, right? Do you remember the beast in chapter 13? The beast that arises uh, out of the ocean. And this beast represents uh, false kingdoms, false rule, rule that would usurp the reign of Christ, that would exalt itself and, and force humanity to really to comply to all of its laws and its ways and, and to ultimately to draw humanity away to the worship of, of, of the, uh, the beast and, and the dragon, Satan himself. So this is the same beast here. She's seated on top of this beast. So this beast supports this city. This, this idea of false government. Government that's uh, humanistic and living for the glory of man and not uh, living for God. Is booing this woman up. She's in partnership. So she's seated on this beast. And there are again mixed metaphors here. The beast has... Seven heads, and they represent, uh, the angel says to John, they represent seven mountains or hills. Why does it say that? Well, there's a famous city, the city of seven hills in history. Does anyone know what that city is? Rome. 
Rome is the city of seven hills. That's most likely what it's referring to. There's an outside chance it might be Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is also seated on seven hills. But by looking at what's going on, the sort of trade, the sort of power that this city possesses, I think it's Rome. It looks like Rome. And so she's, she's representing Rome. Again, mixed metaphors. The woman, the, the, the Babylon, and Rome. And behind it really is a picture of Rome. So she's seated on uh, these seven hills. And also the seven, the seven heads represent seven kings or kingdoms. And we saw earlier, it talks about the, there's five that have been, there's one that is, and then there's one yet to come. And from what we understand, we looked at that earlier, uh, there's a contemporary application of that, probably speaking of the Caesars and Nero and then future Caesars who would come. Uh, there's an application to, through all of history that this is just the way of the world. There are rulers that usurp God and, and would entrap God's people, would martyr God's people, would entrap the world. And then at the very end, we know there'll be rulers who will arise and then one final ruler who will oppose God. So this is the picture here. But, but for those reading and hearing this book initially, they would have understood this is Rome, of course. And these kings uh, are Caesar and Nero. It looks like the, the 666 is a name number that represents Nero from what we can tell. Now these things are not definite. Part of the struggle with Revelation is understanding these things. But likely these are likely understandings uh, of what's going on. So the woman is empowered by the beast. And, and there's a partnership. There's... there's cooperation there. There's a dependency there. It all fits together. And all these lovers are part of it as well. It's a whole system. And it's a picture of humanity apart from God. It's worldliness. So she has lots of lovers because she brings them prosperity. She's wealthy. They get to enjoy her luxuries and her riches. And, and really, the, everybody loves a rich person, pretty much. Proverbs 14.20 says, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. There's just a, a reality that Proverbs is talking about. When you've got money, people want to be your friend. Um, we see it around us. Um, I don't know if any of us are in particularly rich, but uh, I know actually the NFL players, this happens to them. Uh, they get their contract as rookies, and they find all of a sudden all their old friends and extended family want to be part of the money that they're making. Uh, Sports Illustrated did an article in 2009 and uh, said that 78% of NFL players go broke three years after their career. Isn't that amazing? 78%. And so famous players, if you're a football fan, like Warren Sapp, Terrell Owens, Bernie Kosar, and there's many others, uh, have gone broke shortly after their NFL careers. Why? Because what ha tends to happen is they develop this entourage of people who want to spend their money. And they don't spend their money well. And, and even though they're making millions, tens of millions of dollars, it all gets wasted. That's kind of what's going on with this city. Think of, think of that picture. This city brings prosperity and it's all these people are her lovers because they love what she brings. The call here for us is not to be a lover of riches. Not to be intoxicated by riches. Not to be fooled by temporal prosperity. To recognize that this city, there's so much sp time spent in this passage on the fact that this city is doomed. It's judged. It's gone. It will, it will continue this, this prosperity no more. And so the call for us is to come out of the city. Don't live this way. Don't live for temporal riches. Don't live for the things that will pass. Do not compromise your faith in any way to get a hold of something that's really just fading and partial and doomed. But live for the city of God that's destined for eternity. So her riches, her lovers, her sins. The sins that she's engaged in are, are, uh, spiritual, are adulteries. We see that the People are committing adultery with her. It's a metaphor again of spiritual adultery. Now often spiritual adultery leads to actual adultery, but the, the point here is it's spiritual adultery. That, that people are committing with her spiritual adultery. Well, wh how? What does that mean? What's spiritual adultery? And how do you commit spiritual adultery? Well, there's some important background to recognize that we are all made by God and for God. Humanity, human beings are made in His image by Him and for Him. 
We're made to live in covenant with God. We're made to live in this, this solemn and thorough arrangement with God where we live in dependence on Him and we depend on His love and we love Him in return and we love others in His name. We're meant to live in this intimate, close, consistent relationship. That's been the plan from the beginning. Adam and Eve were called to live in this covenant of God where they would believe Him and obey Him and refuse refuse to disobey Him with the tree, with the forbidden fruits. Later on, there's a covenant made with Moses where God calls a special people to Himself to live in covenant. So whether you're of Adam and Eve or of the Jewish covenant, whatever, we're all called to live in covenant with God. We're called to live in a relationship with God. And when, when we refuse that, we break that covenant. When you live apart from dependence on God, relying on His love, living with Him, you commit spiritual adultery. And so that's what's going on in this city. Our people are committing spiritual adultery with this prostitute. They're living life apart from God. They're defining their life, their values, their culture. How they live, live in terms of leisure time. How they pursue and think about everything apart from God. They're saying basically what was said in Babylon, the initial Babylon, let's build a tower for ourselves and make a name for ourselves without God. Let's build a culture that's human-centered and live for ourselves. That's what's going on in this city. It's spiritual adultery. Augustine again said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. We're made for God. And we're restless. We're wandering until we find our rest in the Lord. It's an inescapable reality for every human being. And, and if you are here today uh, living apart from God, apart from the grace that God has for you in Christ, we just invite you to consider these truths. And we ultimately invite you to put your faith in Jesus who came to pay for our sins so that our spiritual adultery would be atoned for, paid for justly by His death on the cross. And then through His life in us, we can now live a new life of forgiveness and intimacy with God. That's what the Scriptures are after. That's what God is after. And if you're here today, I can say with assurance, He wants you to put your trust in Him. To turn from living life independently to depend on Him. Receive the forgiveness that Jesus paid for at such a high price because He loves you. wants you to live in Him. And learn to live in relationship with Him. That's how you're made and you'll never be happy apart from that. This city of man, that's, it lives this way. It lives in spiritual adultery. And that's what's going on with her and all those who are with her. They're living in that. And this spiritual adultery leads to all other sins, really. And so we see other terrible sins going on in this city. There's spiritual adultery in the form of actually killing God's people. There's martyrdom going on. This city, in partnership with the kings and all these people, are killing God's people. They're participating in murder. And murder that's ultimately motivated by hate for God. It's really an inevitable response to spiritual adultery to ultimately kill God's people. Why? Well, if you're living in spiritual adultery, you're living in rebellion against God. And whenever there are people around who have been brought back to God and are living in obedience and faith to God, they are a thorn in your flesh. They, they are a problem for you. Because they remind you of where you live. And, they're, and just by the exist, their very existence, even if they don't even say anything, they're a contrary statement to your lifestyle and your choices. And so if you are a powerful person and a powerful culture, you'll do the inevitable. You'll get rid of them. And that's the history of mankind. Getting rid of God's people. When, when it goes its own way, it's inevitable that they will kill God's people because they're just an irritation. Think, think of Herod and John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is speaking up for truth. And what happens? Herod has him killed. And, and this goes on throughout history. So her sins of, of martyrdom follow from the spiritual adultery that's going on. It's just interesting to see how things happen. Isn't it interesting to see the progression there? I think we could see a progression of intoxication by riches, spiritual adultery, and eventually murder. I'm not saying that if you're intoxicated by riches, you'll kill somebody. But overall, that's the tendency in culture. Intoxicated by these things, they find pleasure in this false god. They live apart from God in spiritual adultery and then they ultimately kill God's people because they are considered the enemies. We see it in all different ways all around us. We see that trend. Um, 
How many here know the name Bernie Madoff? Uh, you probably know the story. He, he was a, a trader on Wall Street. And he didn't, I don't think, start out his career thinking that he was going to build people out of $65 billion. He's currently serving a prison sentence of 150 years minimum in federal prison. His Ponzi scheme that he set up uh, built people out of that much money, $65 billion, led to the suicide of multiple people, by the way, when they lost everything. They realized they had lost all their life savings and they took their lives, multiple people, including his own son. But he didn't start out that way. If you know his story, he started out as a, and from what we can tell, an honest, zealous young stock trader. He actually was part of innovating stock trading and using uh, electronics. And so the NASDAQ was partly started by Bernie Madoff, the idea of using electronic trading. So he, and it's a great innovation. So he started that way. But at some point along the line, the intoxication of riches took over. And he was willing to commit terrible, very extensive fraud for that sake. And that led to even people taking their lives. It's a picture of what's going on here in Revelation. And these lovers are all brought in and they are following and, and they are committing spiritual adultery and they are participating in, in even the death of God's people. And Christ has come to rescue us from this. He's come to rescue us from living this way to finding forgiveness in Him and a new life and new treasure. And when you come to Christ, He says, let go of the riches. Let go of those things and let me rule and reign in your life. Receive in me true life and true riches. And learn to handle everything my way. Jesus calls us to lay down all of our riches. Everything that we have at His feet. Our jobs, our talents, our family, our savings, our ambitions, our dreams, all are to be laid at His feet. We are to turn from living like the city of man to live in His kingdom. And that's what we do. We lay it all at His feet. Now just so you know, um, He doesn't just leave it there, though He can if He wants. He teaches us. Part of what being a believer is is learning now to live with those things in light of who He is. To offer them to Him and, and to enjoy them for His sake and to use them to bless and to do things that are for His glory and the good of others. That's, that's what He does. He transforms our lives so that we live in Him and we use our riches in our lives to honor Him. There's an inherent call in this whole story about the city of man for believers to do the opposite. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be committed, uh, committing spiritual adultery. Don't even walk on that path that will lead you to do horrendous things. Instead, at the very beginning, learn to lay everything at Jesus' feet. Trust Him. Boy, some practical ways to do that, guys. I would say, learn to tithe. Trust Him. Give Him your heart by giving Him your wallet. Give the first 10% of your income to Him, not the leftovers. Give to your local church and give beyond that 10% to the many worthy causes that are out there. That's such a practical, important way to apply these things. Now, just so you know, we as a church don't require this. But Scripture is so compelling in here in Revelation and elsewhere calling us to live very differently than the world. And here's a very practical way in Scripture. Give 10%. It hurts, doesn't it, if you do that? If you're on a tight budget, it can hurt. But it's so good for our souls. It protects us. It keeps us oriented on the things that are God's priorities. Second, just a practical way to walk this out is be ready to suffer uh, financial loss for the sake of the kingdom in different ways. Just be prepared for it. As you are, maybe for some of our young people starting out and just finishing college and starting a job, be ready to suffer financial loss for the sake of the kingdom. You might forego a certain type of job or promotion because it would take too much time away from your family. So you take a lesser paying job. That's one way that that happens. You might be less popular at work because you don't go out to the strip clubs and hang out at the bar late at night with the rest of the crew. You might do, uh, not do as well at work because you don't join in the gossip or you don't lie for your boss. You might suffer financial loss for the kingdom simply because you plan to have children 
And as you think through it, you realize when the kids are young, the very best way to care for them and to train them is for the mom to stay at home with them. I know of, of two people who uh, were very successful, two women who gave up uh, six-figure salaries. One woman was a, basically an internationally known scientist who gave up her career temporarily to take care of their kids. That's the sort of practicals that, that we can uh, walk out in obedience to what we're learning today. We are to pursue the city of God, forsaking the city of man. Well, moving along, we see her punishment here in the story as well. She's piling up her sins over time. Especially the sin of killing God's people. There's no repentance going on. There's just bold disobedience over time. And so God eventually brings judgment on this city. This great prostitute. And, and the judgment actually interesting in the storyline, it involves betrayal by her lovers. They are the ones who come and they, they leave her desolate. They burn her with fire. It's her very lovers that turn on her in the storyline. Now, we don't know how exactly that happens. Um, I have some thoughts and I'll get to that. It also, in 1821, an angel picks up a great millstone, a big stone used to mill corn and so forth, and throws it in the sea and says, this will be how this city will be destroyed. So the picture here is that there's this dramatic judgment that comes on the city. It's at the hands of her lovers, actually. that They leave her desolate. But it's profound. And there's, I, I don't know if you heard the refrain as I read it. It's a, a Edgar Allan Poe sort of refrain of no more, no more, no more in chapter 18. No more. Babylon will be found no more. You'll hear music no more. You'll see the works of craftsmen no more. You'll hear the sound of milling no more. You'll enjoy the city's light no more. You'll celebrate weddings no more. An empire built on falsehood will eventually find that falsehood its undoing. And God brings judgment on the city of man. It's sobering. It's dramatic. It's profound. And all of that drama is meant to drive home a lesson for all of us. To come out of the city of man doomed to fail and live for the city of God destined for eternity. Now, her own lovers desolate her. And, and I think perhaps uh, in, in the storyline too, it's in the matter of course of those lovers wanting to fight against God's people. So somehow in the course of them deciding that they're actually going to oppose God and fight Jesus Himself at the very end when, when Jesus comes with His armies, there's the, the, in that course, somehow it leaves the city desolate. I think of Germany actually in World War II and the city of Berlin. For a while, for a majority of the German people, they were willing to follow Nazism because it brought prosperity and power, didn't it? Hitler brought a lot of prosperity to Germany. He restored the sense of German pride. He, he, uh, he was, uh, oversaw the Volkswagen company. And Volkswagen, that's a German word for people's car. And it was the first uh, car company that basically made cars for a common man. And that day was unheard of. You had to be rich to have a car. So Hitler oversaw the, this whole idea of everybody getting to have a car, which was a big deal. They built the highway system in, in Germany, which became the inspiration for our highway system. There was factories. There was prosperity. There was a lot of benefit to following Hitler. But behind that, we know, was this hatred for the historic people of God, the Jewish people. God's gift and calling are irrevocable. God has His hand on the Jewish people in ways that worthy of another message. But, but there was this hatred of the Jewish people that drove this demonically inspired lie that Hitler lived for and those who followed him lived for. And they, almost, they, they attempted to kill all the Jewish people. They almost got there, the, people, the Jewish people under their reign. But God, the God of the universe stopped it. Thank God. But the result was what? Desolation for Berlin. Desolation for Germany. Very akin to our story in Revelation 17 and 18. There will always be payback in God's universe. And it, so it teaches us that faith in Him and faithfulness by His grace is always a better choice. Even if it means poverty and persecution and even death. God is in control. And the difference between living a life of spiritual adultery and spiritual fidelity often, it isn't that one loves pleasure and the other hates pleasure. That's not the difference. It's that one 
is living for fading false pleasures that are immediate. And the other is living for eternal, glorious pleasures that may not be immediate. It's basically deferred gratification. Makes all the difference between terrible evil and great good. And there's a lesson for us to live for that which is truly enduring and glorious and, and may not come in its fullest, will not come in its fullness till the very end. That is part of the lesson here. My, my final point, our response, what to do. Well, Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So, the lesson is, come out of her, my people. Come out of the city of man, my people. Have nothing to do with her sins and therefore nothing to do with her punishments. Come out of the city of man. Now just so you know, this isn't, this isn't geographically come out. This isn't you know, some, uh, how a pitch for country living, right? Don't live in cities. Go live in the country because that's where the good people are. That's not what's being said. Matter of fact, in those days, the, there were very few Christians in the countryside. That's why we use the word Latin word for farmer to mean unbeliever. The Latin word for farmer is pagan. It, so it isn't saying move out of the city. It's not a geographical change. It's a spiritual heart change. Don't live for the city of man. Come out of her in that way. You may remain in Rome, but don't live for the city of man in Rome. Don't live for humanistic false glories, but for that which is eternal. Come out of her and put away the ways of the world. Come out and live for the eternal, the good, the true. Depend on the Lord. Now it's important for us to understand that. How that works practically. I want to talk briefly about that. I think we have made mistakes. God's people have made mistakes in this. How do you come out of the city of man? Um, there are different mistakes that can be made. I, I see two trends right now in our generations. Two trends that are prominent within the respective great, greatest generations or biggest generations present right now. That would be the baby boomers and the millennials. There's other generations. There's X and there's Z and so forth. Um, but just with these two generations, I see two tendencies that are, I think are mistakes in how to come out of the city of man and live for the city of God. I see a trend among baby boomers towards the mistake of physically or relationally separating from the world in response to this. Physically or relationally separating from the world and isolating themselves in ways not intended by Scripture for the purpose of coming out of the city of man. Thinking that that isolation will somehow ensure holiness. And in the process, they end up leaning towards Phariseeism and away from being truly effective ambassadors who are meant to live in the city of God amidst other cities for the sake of Christ. I see that tendency among baby boomers. I see that tendency even in my own heart. On the other hand, I see among millennials a tendency towards making the mistake of fully engaging in the world and, and really not separating from the city of man effectively. And so you'll see this in the stats among the music, literature, TV shows, the media, even the sexual ethics of millennials are not that different from the culture. And many millennials find it hard to draw the line when needed between the world and the church. And so, many of them leave the church. They are leaving the churches in droves and failing to stand as faithful witnesses. There's mistakes on either side. I think the resolution of it is in Scripture. Reading stories like the story of Daniel. I think Daniel does a fantastic job of coming out of the city of man and living in the city of God. Daniel uh, worked for Babylon. He was a government official for Babylon. He was right in the middle. And, and by and large, that government was a government that lived for pagan gods and lived for, for non-believing ethics. And yet Daniel was right there in government. But Daniel also drew the line when he had to, didn't he? He, did, he refused to, to bow down to the, the image. He refused to do certain things. He drew the line even if it meant death. He was bold and he was firm in that. But he still lived to serve others, to bless his, his bosses, the king and others. He was fully engaged, but he drew the line because his heart was in the city of God, not the city of man. There's lots of other examples. And, and as the bank comes up and we transition, let me ask you, 
what God would have you do? Are you, do you need to come out of the city of man in some way? Are you compromising in some way? Are you intoxicated by the false promise of riches? Are you afraid to share your faith with your peers? I think these would all be signs of living in the city of man. Are the opinions of your friends or family more important than Jesus' opinion? Scripture calls you to come out of the city of man and live for the city of God. To submit all you have to Him. To live for Him. To prioritize your life in line with Him and His values. There's all sorts of ways we can do that. I mentioned some already. You know some practical ways? We have a VBS meeting after church today to help out with VBS. A great way to to bless children and families. Maybe a step for you is one simple thing. Hey, I'm going to help out with VBS this year. There's other ways you can serve and use your energy and talents to serve what God's doing in and through this church as well as other things around us. You're called by God to come out of the city of man and live for the city of God. I want to just close with a short story. Uh, If you could put the slide of the young man up. On April 9, 1913, a 25-year-old heir to the Borden estate, William Whiting Borden, a gifted and charismatic prodigy, he died of spinal meningitis while being trained in Egypt as a missionary to Muslims. He came from a very wealthy family. He had forsaken fame and vast fortune because he saw the city of God as eternal and glorious. He decided when he was around 16 years old to to give his life to world missions. To give up a secure and sure job with his family. He wrote in his Bible at the time, no reserve. Later on, when he was offered a secure position in his uh, father's company, He chose to give it up to be a missionary. He wrote in his Bible, no retreat. And then when he was in Egypt, sick and about to die from meningitis, he wrote, no regrets. The news of his death was carried by nearly every American newspaper. And to many, it seemed like a terrible waste. Why would he give his life away? This gifted, talented young man, wealthy young man, But to thousands of others who could see beyond the city of man, it was just the inspiration they needed. Thousands became missionaries as a result of Borden's example. And he himself bequeathed $20 million, modern-day equivalent to the China Inland Mission. Guys, the call of Revelation 17 and 18 is to come out of the city man doomed to fail and live for the city of God so that we can say along with Borden, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Let's just take a minute to consider what God would call you to do in light of Revelation 17 and 18 and then Toby will transition us into communion.